tell me about 1990. We were at near zero carbon emissions. So the, the brief for, for the piece was to go back and look at the history because we know that we're now looking at three decades of rising emissions. Science journalist Veronica Maduna was digging into the backstory of our emissions record and she came across something staggering. I went back to 1990 because that is the year that we started the inventories, that countries started to track their emissions. And I, to be honest, I was surprised to see that, that back then we were near carbon neutral for carbon dioxide, so not for the other greenhouse gases as such, but for carbon dioxide. And that's the goal that we're now trying to get back to by 2050. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, we were so close 30 years ago. Now we're part of the global mess. A cold rent for humanity. Climate change is now rapid, widespread. And intensifying. Our future is going to be warmer than it is right now. Crackling wildfires, raging rivers, devastating storm. Latest evidence on climate change said on Monday that human activity is indisputably to blame as preparations gear up for this November's COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Well, we've known for decades that the world is warming. And locally... New Zealand is not currently on a pathway that would enable us to meet our domestic targets and fulfil our international obligations to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 or by 2050. You know, immediately you think that if we'd done something stronger then or during the 90s, you know, during that first decade, we could easily be in a very different place now. Today, we look at the mistakes and missed opportunities with Maduna. She's written about it in a story for North and South called We Spent 25 Years Doing Virtually Nothing. But first, a basic explanation of carbon dioxide emissions versus greenhouse gas emissions. For New Zealand, I think the three most relevant greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, methane from agriculture and nitrous oxide from agriculture. So the latter two are coming out of agriculture, while carbon dioxide is essentially part of everything else we do. So that's energy that's manufacturing, transport, that's where carbon dioxide emissions are, the main part. What was going on in 1990? I mean, why was that figure so good? Was it due to good policy or was it good luck? Uh, more the latter. In fact, it was a, you know, a carbon neutral point. So it's not that we had no emissions, it's just that we had a good mix of emissions and then the balancing from forestry. So it wasn't good policy because the issue wasn't really at that stage of developing policy. But 1990 was the the year where the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produced its first assessment. So that was the first time we actually looked at all the research that had been done up to that point and what we can do to mitigate or to lower emissions, reduce emissions. So it's an important year in that sense. One surprise for me when I was researching this story was that I went back even further to 1988. Back then, climate scientists had got together here in Wellington and um, already discussed issues that we are still talking about. They discussed sea level rise, they discussed how the rise in emissions 
and the, the consequence of warming will affect how we can do agriculture, will affect how we can do just about anything. And what was the language like that was used back then? Because now the language is so dramatic, really, when it comes to talking about climate change, isn't it? I mean, Code Red, the latest report, it's apocalyptic almost. What was the level of concern back then? I've just got in front of me, I've got a um, Sunday Star one-page story that reports on this on this conference in 1988 and it describes it as an issue of profound political um, importance something that will require um, you know significant changes across all industries and to me it almost feels like we were at a level of recognizing this as a big issue in the 1990s and then sort of went through a dip in both public awareness but also sort of political importance and then the sort of confusion that came with some of the denying forces. Was it 1990 that there was a major political decision? Globally, yes. So by that point, we had the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It started to bind nations into commitments to do something that... The actual plan for that happened much later in 1997 at the Kyoto Climate Summit, but it was the beginning of of that process. Even before 1990, New Zealand's Labour government saw climate change was a big issue and had policies to cut emissions. But what was the hurry? Our pollution levels were offset by forestry. People weren't really talking about it. Then National Minister Simon Upton's proposal for a carbon tax fell over. It could have put us with the group of countries that have reduced emissions. Instead, our gross emissions have risen 26% over 30 years. New Zealand has met its previous targets by offsetting emissions. And I think that's one of the major factors that plays into this, that the, the policy approach was one of least cost but you're not actually doing anything about real cuts. About the actual pollution, really? Yeah. What happened then in the 1990s? What was the turning point? Who were the people influencing the decision-making at this time? You have to remember this was the time of Rogernomics. In a very short time, we devalued the dollar, we got rid of agricultural subsidies. Uh, we reduced our tariffs, we simplified the tax system. E-regulation, privatisation and a strong belief in market forces was the thinking at the time. So hence the focus was on if we're going to do something about emissions, it would have to come through a price on carbon and give the incentive to industry to change something about the way they do things. There was very little thinking about regulation. In fact, that was looked down upon we didn't do anything about changing the way we transport things around we didn't do much thinking about how we design cities to make it easier for people to not have to use their car so all of this kind of thinking was just not happening you mentioned the business round table was roger kerr in charge of it at the time he was yeah and he he passed away a few years ago so i wasn't able to 
to talk to him, obviously, but I have gone back to some of the submissions that the Business Roundtable um, made at the time, and in their submission to this proposed carbon tax, this is by this stage we're talking 93, 94, and the proposal then was to have a three-year period in which the industry would have time to voluntarily find ways of reducing emissions, and if that didn't happen, then by 1997, there'd be a carbon tax introduced at $10 per tonne of um, carbon dioxide. And to that proposal, the um, the business roundtable at the time made a submission to say that, A, we're not sure enough whether New Zealand would in fact possibly benefit from rising temperatures. The other part of the submission was that the, the temperatures would rise so gradually that people could adapt to it or industries could adapt to it and therefore New Zealand shouldn't do anything too hasty and shouldn't do anything much at all really. But the Business Roundtable, that's the right-wing think tank of the time, did something else. It brought in climate sceptics, people who were part of an orchestrated denial campaign. And they came out and you know went on a tour around New Zealand so who were they, Veronica? Who were they? So one was Richard Lindzen, who was an MIT professor. I'm an atmospheric physicist. I've published more than 200 scientific papers. For 30 years, I taught at MIT, during which time the climate has changed remarkably little. But the cry of global warming has grown ever more shrill. And Bjorn Lomborg was another one whose arguments are less about the understanding of the climate system, but more about how we deal with it. And again, arguing for for standing back and doing less rather than more. If you realize what the climate science is actually telling us is climate change is a problem, but but a reasonably manageable problem. Gosh, so, so the business roundtable was hugely influential. I don't know about hugely. Mm. Um, powerful? Yes, a, a powerful lobby group representing business interests. Influential in the sense that the people they brought out obviously did get coverage in the media. You know, I'm just wondering what attitudes were like in that time. It would have influenced some people. And it was perhaps also this, this sort of process that we still have ongoing today but perhaps less so of of sowing doubt so you had this this one body the intergovernmental plan on climate change which was bringing together scientists to assess research and to then produce these reports every six or seven years and there were hundreds of them involved in the process you had this one body producing these assessments but you had other individual often scientists with a with a good pedigree in, in academic research, slowing doubt, kind of raising questions. And that did confuse people. It politicised the issue, it polarised the issue, and raised arguments that, you know, with time, proved themselves to be wrong. Despite all of the scientific work, the emissions are still continuing to increase. 
That's climate pioneer Dave Lowe. And there's quite a famous picture of him as a young scientist at a wind-blown bearing head on Wellington's south coast. He started a CO2 measuring station there back in the 70s, and it's still there, tracking continuously rising CO2 levels. This is really a sort of the longest standing measurement we have of, of rising CO2 emissions. Dave Law was in his 20s at the time when he set this up, and he was at that age sort of realising not only you know, seeing the rising emissions here, but also realising the consequences. So he's gone through, you know, frustration is probably even an under, mm. understated description of it. He is now strongly involved with uh, um, school strikes for climate and a lot of the youth groups that are now taking this really to the streets. And he relates to that anger that young people have of looking back at, you know, their entire lives being spent discussing climate change without much action, without much progress on policy. Um, He completely relates to that feeling Mm. even now in his 70s. There I feel optimism. Because these young people and those highly innovative engineers, scientists, are out there. They really want to do things and they have solutions. Before we move on to the 2000s, Kyoto, was that also Hmm. a crucial date? New Zealand came back from Kyoto with a negotiated deal that we would bring our emissions back to 1990 levels. So this was 1997, and we'd bring them back to 1990 levels. But Kyoto also, under the rules, you could use offsets and you could trade with other nations. So that's where the idea of offsetting emissions rather than necessarily reducing them directly um, became important. And forestry offsets in particular were a significant, significant policy tool for New Zealand. The thinking has changed since. So Simon Upton was the the minister who went to Kyoto mm. and negotiated a deal on behalf of New Zealand and at the time argued or favoured forestry offsets strongly, but he has since changed his mind on it significantly. The thinking then was that it would give us time. You know, it would give us time to develop other policies to actually reduce emissions. Mm. Um, and it was clear eventually that it's not a long-term solution. At best, it's a short-term fix to buy time because, A, we now realise that it favoured the plantation of commercial pine, but that comes with a seasonal effect that you plant the trees and they sequester carbon, they strip it out of the, out of the atmosphere, but then, of course, you cut the trees down and you release all that carbon back into the atmosphere. Mm. So... Forest offsets, really, we can't rely on them for as strongly as we have so far. And the Climate Change Commission is quite clear on that, that forest offsets will remain a significant tool for the emissions that we cannot easily reduce, but we shouldn't rely on them as strongly as we have. That's why I'm sitting down here in my wool shed, shouldn't have to pay my dues, because I've got those fat tax blues. Let's move to the 2000s now and the famous fart tax uproar and the repercussions of that. Did that kind of demonstrate the power of farmers? Yes, but it also illustrates 
the issue that New Zealand has. So while we compare ourselves with other wealthy developed nations, our emissions profile is very different. Most other wealthy nations don't have primary industries as a backbone of the economy. And for us, that means that our emissions profile is half carbon dioxide and the other half, roughly speaking, agricultural emissions, methane from cows and sheep and deer um, and nitrous oxide. And by not including agriculture in any of the pricing attempts, you know, whether it's a tax or an emissions trading scheme, New Zealand's always only try to tackle half of our emissions and agriculture has remained out of the picture and in fact will remain out of the picture until at least 2024 because it remains exempt mm. but back in back in 2003 I think it was then we have a Labour government and uh, Pete Hodgson is the Minister of Climate Change who was trying to introduce another attempt to have a carbon tax but parallel to that, called for a mandatory levy on agriculture, a levy that would pay for research to look at reducing methane emissions from livestock. But that caused the you know the uproar that most people probably remember. It became known as a fart tax, um, and it partially derailed or contributed to the. The fact that in the end that government didn't have the numbers to introduce the tax on carbon dioxide either. Those fat tax blues, yeah, baby. And during that time, what we had was sort of voluntary negotiated agreements with individual companies, but nothing major in terms of pricing carbon until 2008. The government is set to introduce an emissions trading scheme after finally securing the numbers it needs to pass the legislation. Since its introduction in 2008, it went through a whole number of amendments, changes, tweaking here and there, and during that early time, in fact, didn't work at all for all sorts of reasons. So in essence, the idea is that you have a certain number of units or credits um, that account for the emissions that you allow yourself for that particular period. And then emitters have to buy these or surrender these back to government and, and therefore pay for their emissions. But it's you know globally coincided with the time when former Soviet Union collapsed and a lot of countries, suddenly their economies collapsed and their emissions dropped. And it led to a collapse of the price of those units below a dollar, so they became worthless, essentially. Mm. But fast forward to now, we now have an ETS, and it remains an important tool, that has this year um, began a, a series of auctions, so there's quarterly auctions. The price is now at $50, just about $50, so it is starting to kick in as a price incentive. The New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme is our primary tool for reducing climate pollution in Aotearoa. It will remain the main economic tool, the main price tool into the future, but it's no longer the main tool. The big difference between 1990 and now is public awareness and events like the student marches give Veronica Maduna some optimism. 
I'm with um, Paul Young. He was one of the people I interviewed for the story. He was part of Generation Zero. And then after the Paris summit began a campaign to have a Carbon Zero Act that had clear targets and clear goals in that space. And I was talking to him. He's now with the Climate Commission. He's one of their modelers about exactly that you know how do you feel after having run this campaign having seen sort of finally some movement in that space but still you know ever rising emissions and i probably fall into his same sense of cautious optimism Mm. that while we're looking at the rising emissions underneath all of that a lot of change is happening not least the the street protests, the school strike movement, the recognition that the longer we leave this, the more expensive it will be, the more painful it will be. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Veronica Maduna. Kakite anō 